Welcome to the My Risk Advisor podcast. This podcast is for anyone in the Australian financial planning ecosystem with a focus on life risk insurance. Whether you're a seasoned advisor or just starting out, I think you'll get heaps of value out of this podcast. I'm your host, Phil Thompson, and I'm a life risk insurance specialist, and you're listening to My Risk Advisor. Really excited today. I sit down with Catherine Hayes and we talk about the recent APRA statements uh, delaying the third stage of the income protection changes. So we have a chat about what's happened to date, what was the announcement on the 24th of March and where to from here. So I hope you enjoy the show. But before we get started, we can't do this podcast without the help of Zurich and OnePath. So I want to start by saying thank you. Zurich and OnePath are your partners in life and are also proud supporters of the My Risk Advisor podcast. Thanks for joining me, Catherine. Uh, This is your second time on, I think. So, uh, welcome back. Um, So, today we want to have a chat just about the APRA changes or rollback of changes or stopping of changes. There's a lot going on. Yeah, so we're going to chat about the APRA IDII Triage 3 rollback or delay. But before we get there, let's just talk about what does IDII mean and what has changed to date? So, you know, plenty of advisors listen. We kind of get a good sense of what's going on, but help us understand what is IDII. Well, IDII, just individual disability income insurance. So, all income protection products really fall under that category. Um, So, three tranches. Outside of of stuff through super and and group. Yeah, this is the retail space that we're we're talking about. So, there was three tranches. So, the first tranche was really, it was a nice simple change. It was fairly clean. And that was the end of agreed value, which happened back in sort of that March, April 2020 window. Um, So, that was a nice rush when that happened trying to for those who really wanted agreed value and then as of October 20 last year it was actually just supposed to be the second phase it was intended to be you know the the five-year contracts it was intended to be the significant sustainability measures which was quite broad but the industry pushed back and said well you're asking for we won't be able to do it particularly around the five-year contracts so APRA said look we'll give you an extra 12 months yeah, and and the changes that happened last yeah. year. So just a quick recap. So you know, insurers have a had to reduce their replacement ratios on income projection. Yeah, um, yeah. There was heaps of changes, and everyone's gone about it in a different way. So everybody looked at the same information and interpreted it completely different. We're starting to see that. Um, everyone's starting to pick a more common path. You're seeing less outliers now, but in the end, you've got a lower income replacement ratio that was a decent size things. A lot of insurers um, aren't including superannuation in the key earnings anymore. Uh, some will no longer allow you to have that as an extra insurable benefit. All the ancillary benefits that you would typically have had, like, uh, you know, your crisis benefits, your specified injury benefits, your three-tier definition, a lot of that disappeared. And for most insurers, you're also looking at a scenario where they, if you've been on claim for more than two years, you're no longer going to be assessed against your own occupation. It's any occupation after two years. Yeah, mm. that was a big that was a big adjustment. APRA wanted sustainability of long term claims, yeah. um, and so yeah, either put a capability clause where the insurers can say, mm. "Hey, you're capable enough to work. We're kicking you off claim," um, or to to assess it under a different. Um, 
rating of saying, can you do any job reasonably suitably qualified to do? Yes. All right, go work somewhere else. Yeah, and even um, indemnity definitions, they tightened up as well. Yeah, and the other thing that you mentioned that were that was planning to come in was the five-year contract terms. Yeah. Now, APRA, oh, it all blurs into together, but they delayed that pretty late in the game. They mm. definitely did it like mid-year last year. They delayed that that for 12 months. Mm-hmm. Now, APRA, as of the 25th of March, where is it? I've got it here, 24th of March. Um, feels like months ago, but it was only like... <laughs> <laughs> a few weeks ago now. Oh, it feels like um, months for me, yep. <laughs> 24th of March, the APRA came out and said what? Oh, they said that they have decided that because of the obvious consumer detriment uh, that they will be delaying uh, the five-year contract renewal measures for at least two years Uh there was also some comments um, thrown around in the background as well saying that it's not necessarily just a two-year reprieve. It's a complete reassessment of whether the measure is entirely needed in, in what format because they've understood that there is clearly consumer detriment in these measures. So they still want the concept of insurers being able to modify terms of a contract, but they understand that what they were putting forward um, in its current format was problematic. Yeah, that's right. So, just the five-year term, that wasn't a full underwriting, full application, full everything. If you've had cancer in that five-year term, you're not getting an exclusion on that rollover. The five-year term was just um, occupationally at reassessing the policy. Past times. So, if, mm. if you've gone from being an accountant to working on a mining site, then you, they're re-rating the policy. Mm. And the other one, yeah, lifestyle pastimes. So, if you, you know, pretty boring accountant and now you're riding motorbikes and going deep sea diving underwater, then, then they will reassess um, the policy based on that. And they were also reassessing your financials as well. Yeah, and you know we we had many chats about that. That um, I think the clients that we work with, we work with young clients. I think sixty seven percent of our clients are females, so it had a massive detrimental impact on young females who may plan to take some time out of the workforce. Oh yeah, um, if that five year term came up and they're on parental leave, mm-hmm. well, too bad. Yeah, no, I had uh, I had quite a few meetings. Um, you know, the, the joint task force was actively working on this. That's the um, AFA and the FPA came together, meeting with, you know, Actuaries Institute, um, members of parliament on both sides, uh, ASIC, APRA. <laughs> you know, we've just been solidly working. Um, and there hasn't been a lot of, um, I guess, public knowledge of that, so to speak. A few people know that this joint task force exists, but what they've tackled and the amount of meetings that have been held um, with the regulators and the politicians has been huge. And, I mean, help me understand, has this happened before? FBA and AFA worked together this closely on anything in the past? Well, the Joint Task Force has been running for a couple of years now. So it came together when, um, with the intention of LIF, making sure that when the LIF review came up that we could argue for the retention of commissions and giving consumers choice. Yeah, but but in the past they, yeah, I mean, everyone's friendly. We're all friends. Mm. We're all it's a small community. But in the past, AFA and the FBA haven't they've, come together. Yeah, they've run their own tracks in the past, to the best of my knowledge. But there's yeah. been a lot of working together on this particular project. You know, they've definitely heard the message. We want a united voice. So that's what they've delivered. Yeah, mm. yeah, 
good well good stuff well done um, we've got a good outcome so yeah the suspension of the contract terms mm-hmm. now APRA were really interesting in their statement <laughs> when they came out so I'll actually read out from their statement so it says um, APRA also expects during the suspension the life companies to maintain a strong focus on individual income protection sustainability, including uplift of capabilities and practices in accordance with APRA's previously communicated expectations. Basically, keep doing what we've told you to do in the past and keep focusing on making sure you're profitable. Um, consider conduct-related matters arising from various laws, reforms. I mean, that's just... Mm. Keep keep on touch of what's going on, but uh, yeah, the thing the thing that I would this area of the statement um, that was really interesting. There's a few things, but one of them was while it's not unreasonable for life companies to review and potentially revise the products in response to competitive offering and feedback from distribution channels, APRA expects all life companies, including reinsurers, to be disciplined in their action and apply rigorous governance to any contemplated changes. And so I read that as don't go back to unsustainable products again. Don't do unsustainable practices because we'll keep a pretty keen eye on what's going on. And if this keeps happening, don't kick and scream and whinge to us that we're putting in these measures if you're just going to go back and, and to the unsustainable practices. And not only that, they'll get the huge uh, capital charges <laughs> imposed on them, which no insurer wants. Hmm. Well, that that's true, but... Well, we're talking two weeks after this APRA statement came out, Mm -hmm. we had an an insurer giving new upfront discounting. (laughs) Yeah. And APRA specifically stated that in this this letter as a a thing for um, unsustainable practices. Yeah, literally in the next next line it says, where upfront premium discounting applied. The appropriateness and level of these discounts should be carefully considered from a sustainability perspective. Yeah, I have had many arguments with some um, some peeps at APRA about this because there's we all know there's a couple of insurers out there who have had a really bad habit of doing steep upfront discounts, which ends up being a bit of a shock for the client the next year and saying, look, this is a problem. This adds to the sustainability woes. And APRA's responses at the time were effectively, we don't see it as a problem. We think we're not pricing regulators. That's what they kept on saying. And so as long as there's no collusion going on, um, they're saying businesses should be able to offer discounts where they want. And we have been saying time and time again, um, it does cause a sustainability problem, especially when a product is known to be unsustainable. How can you discount it? Uh, So they've just said it's not their problem. And we have strongly disagreed and said you can't have, it's a seesaw, you can't have pricing and definitions completely alienated from each other. You can have Mm. awesome definitions as long as you price it appropriately and vice versa. Um, But they're saying, look, well, you know, it can attract additional customers um, and those additional lives in the pool can, you know, balance out the sustainability measure. And I call bull, but. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I'd wonder, I wonder where the stats are Mm. for, for the businesses that are, gaining market share through upfront discounting, mm-hmm. it'd be really interesting to know out of the lives that they're insuring, the new business lives, how many of them are new to insurance clients. And how many of those people stay after they get the bill shock of two to three, you know, two to three years in when they're going, this is nowhere near the original premium I was paying. Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I was pretty encouraged when I saw them specifically call out this poor um, sustainability 
sustainability measure mm. um, within the industry, saying that, no, hold on, let's not just do these discounting upfronts because it isn't good for, for really anyone in there. And having a cheaper upfront cost for a product that you should be paying for a really long time to come is not a sustainable measure. But anyway... Two seconds later, one insurer came out and, and added it um, and, I, and I just wonder, insurers kicked and screamed and saying, we just can't, you know, um, input this or we can't put this these new measures in place. It's going to increase our costs, which is all very, very true. Oh, I, I, from the advisor's point of view, we all hated it. Um, but you can't turn around and just give these new upfront discounting Um it just drives me mental, as you can probably hear. <laughs> yeah, there was, I mean, I am just really relieved that they actually listened. So in the end, I mean, I, I personally put together a case study, which was for APRA to go through um, consumer detriment cases, noting that, you know, you've got the things like the income when everyone, all the new policies are on indemnity now. So in terms of the risk of someone being overinsured, it's minimal. So having to reassess someone's um, income every five years is largely redundant. Um, in terms of, you know, occupation changes and pastimes, yes, there is a small risk with that, but most people for the for the major part become more sedentary in their occupation as time goes on. They go from labouring, you know, if you're a labourer, you don't tend to do it indefinitely. If anything, you become, you know, a manager in the office or you, you do nothing but quoting or, you know, you become less active as you age in your roles. So, if anything, there's a um, if a client was re-rated, there could be a discount achieved. And there'll be a few small cases where someone moves in from you know public servant to police officer, but they are far and few between. But the biggest risk by far, as I saw it as, and as you know, Phil, we've spoken about this, is um, I saw it as particularly discriminated um, discriminative towards women because they're the ones most likely to be caught out with the occupation re-rate, which would be home duties if they were on parental leave, which as we know is not a, a cover you can maintain income protection on. And yeah. there was no measures being designed to cater to that. So there was too many loopholes and if this, then that, and what if type scenarios, it was a mess. So uh, kind of went to the message, <laughs> the minister with the message that um, this is legislating discrimination. So mm. they didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it's just factually correct um it wasn't a good measure um with very little benefit who's increased costs for everybody and honestly who's mm. benefiting no one yeah yeah exactly it's not more sustainable because the insurers are uh, wearing the cost of these of these changes mm. so the sustainability measure just wasn't there because the very few who are rorting the system by going from an accountant to police officer mm. There's very few of them in the in the system. Yep. Um, and so I guess where where to from here? What's your kind of expectation? Because APRA has suspended it; they haven't canned it. They've also said, "Hey, we're keeping a real close eye on on it," and they've shown that they've taken action before, mm -hmm. and so they can do it again and just bring this bring this up again. So, what's kind of your expectation moving forward? Look, I. Look, I will expect at some point down the track, I wouldn't be surprised if there was an introduction to, I guess, a measure where insurers had the ability to alter product definitions um, to an existing contract without having to close off a product series. And I, 
as much as I love that you can't do that right now, that it's fully guaranteed, I expect that at some point, and I'm not saying it's in two years, but at some point down the track, I expect that that will be um, the go because at the moment, if an, if an insurer is becoming unprofitable, the only lever they have is pricing, which doesn't work out well for the market. You have to have the ability to um, to balance out the terms and conditions as well as pricing because that's what happens in the group space right now. Um, so the the alternative case that I put forward um, in my submission was to say that they should use the group space as a model where it's not individually assessed. However, unlike, you know, a simply a tender going out to a group super fund where it's this is the terms, take it or leave it, it should be in the retail space where, you know, almost like health funds where they ha- say, hey, we need a price increase because you know, our costs are going up. It should be the same for the insurers. They need to make a case to APRA and say, hey, we need to change this specific definition um, to all our existing contracts because of we're needing to meet this sustainability measure. And then APRA would give a yay or a nay. So that was the alternative that I put forward. Um, So whether that will come about, who knows, but I think eventually there needs to be more than just a price lever. Yeah, and I mean, uh, some of the other things that APRA did mention in that letter was, you know, th- their expectation for insurers to take steps to support policyholders who are in unsustainable products to transition to their new, more sustainable products. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. Like, how good would that be? It'll help everyone. Well, APRA seems to be pretty surprised that people weren't jumping across to the new policies, so they don't quite understand the significant difference and, of course, the concern in an advisor's own mind of, what happens if I do shift my clients from their old IP product to the new one and then they go on claim, but because they've been shifted to the new product, it's the difference between getting a claim or not. That's what's, you know, making advisors really nervous. So it's going to get to that point where it really will have to be a significant price saving um, for a lot of people, I think, before they will consider switching. That's right, and we we may get there, but it's it's the ease of which you can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Apple expect that it's just a button the insurers have that just press to move across? Because that's not what happens um, for a lot of insurers. We're fully underwriting the new thing, and so if we've got a health issue that's happened after we took out the pre, you know, September policy, and now we've got that um, health concern, well, we can't move there. Mm-hmm. So it, it isn't just a click a button on the screen and, and we've moved across the products because, I mean, I've talked to clients all the time because we're getting increases <laughs> on premiums all the time and I'm talking about it and I'm saying to clients that, look, today the price discrepancy isn't that high. Mm-hmm. The old products aren't that much more expensive than the new ones even with these new increases that are coming in um, and the definitions are, are much better, especially I spoke to a self-employed Sparky today yeah. um, and I said, look, it's, it's not worthwhile moving today um, but if the old policies continue to get increased, then it's maybe a conversation we have in a few years' time. But it would be good if insurers start looking at it and say, well, we're already on risk for this client. Let's actually reduce our risk without any underwriting and just reprice it based on the new product. Exactly. There needs to be transition pathways. And I think a big part of that will also be, um, I think advisors are going to expect not just the ability to transition in a product, but having flexibility as well. So that could be 
you could say, let's say you have a $10,000 monthly benefit, instead of just maybe shifting your whole amount, maybe shifting half of your monthly benefit across. Mm. To, so you could have five on the old and five on the new. Um, it will be scenarios where, um, you know, people will want their, if they're going to shift across the product, let's say you've had a level premium income protection policy for 20 years, you want that level premium start date honoured as well. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to go on a bit of a rant here. Um, so just skip forward a few minutes um, for any listeners. Um, but this has kind of been my stance for a long time and I know you agree with me, but this is where the value of not dabbling in insurance really helps. I remember when I was a holistic advisor, I had retiree clients, accumulated clients and and when the um, pension um, Centrelink changes with, with regards to term pensions and, and the date at which your pension started meant it was exempt from Centrelink or 50% exempt and all these things, I was like, this is way too difficult. If I'm seeing a pension client once a month, I've got to remember all of these dates of when they started their pension, what's going on now and what's the best. Like just saving a bit of money on admin fees moving from one pension to another is not in the client's best interest and it just becomes more and more complex. So I moved out of that space because of that and this is where I think generalist advisors dabbling in insurance need to just be a bit more careful and cautious. If you're only touching it a little bit and you look at the premium comparison and you go, oh, yeah, well, we can move here, then you want to be super careful yeah. um, being able to do that. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sort of – I absolutely agree with your comments and I'm going to add to that. Because some people will say, well, look, as long as I've got a brand new client and I'm not replacing anything, then I should be fine. And I'm going to say, mm, maybe not, because the new products are so much more complex and there's so much more variation. So before it was really, the insurers were kind of a little bit much of a muchness and everybody had their different sweet spots, whether for health conditions and but, you know, you just like, is it standard? Is it plus? How are we going to structure this? Whereas now I know, and I've spoken about this, there's only two insurers that do own occupation for the duration of claim. And some people are going, wow, that's the best out there. I'm going to rush towards that. Um, one of those particular insurers, and I'm not naming names, has a really shitty um, clause if you're planning to take time off work and stop and have kids. There's a, a really big risk that you could have your, um, you could end up not being paid following a period of mat leave. Um, whereas the other insurer, that's not a problem. So, and then some sick leave clauses, they are improving, can be really harsh. So you really need to be looking beyond core scores. You really need to be looking at the offsets very carefully and taking into account future plans. I, and I mean, Anytime you're talking about just specialising in insurance, I'm all for, but I, like, I wonder if insurers are just going to all come together soon anyway. Are they not? Uh, look, I, I expect the, the differences to shrink over the coming years and mm. I, I, the feedback I've had so far from the insurers is now that they've got breathing space with IDII, they're really looking at reviewing and, uh, you know, touching up their new IDII products. Yeah, and that, and that, yeah, that's kind of my expectation. Now, I had a chat to MetLife about this and said, well, now these APRA changes are parked, won't every insurer just have the same own occupation for the life of the policy? And and they were saying that, well, it's going to be, pr- it, 
you know, this is coming from them, so mm-hmm. you take it with a grain of salt, of course. Um, but my feedback was, or the feedback I got was, well, it's maybe a bit difficult because they've gone to APRA saying these are the sustainability, sustainability measures we think are really important and this is why we don't think we should have these capital charges and this is why we've designed it this way to then six months later go back and say, actually, you know what? We've kind of changed our minds on, on what is sustainable and what is not. So, we think we can change it to this. Um, APRA may ask a few more questions. Now, I think in my view, they're all just going to come together um, pretty quickly. It may take a year or two to actually land there, but I, w- I would probably imagine they're all going to go back to the same thing and start competing on price again. And, you know, we're just going to go through this all again in a few years' time, which will be fun. Yeah, only time will tell. Um, but, I mean, the good thing that has come from this, though, is that the insurers have started to become profitable. That's what seems to be the case and that's what we needed to see. We couldn't have continued loss-making exercises. Yeah, which is interesting because they became profitable before the last changes came in. So, they they, they were profitable in um, July 2021. Mm. And, um, you know, his question is that the end of agreed value. Who knows? Um, probably not. Yeah, it's not I mean, enough time, some, but you'd think, you know. So. Yeah, some of them some of them had increases before that time period, but um but it wasn't it wasn't the masses. So I would imagine these new changes will just increase that profitability, which is what we want mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Um insurance is a pooled product. When that pool is losing money, then it's it only makes sense that we're gonna get price increases. Yeah, absolutely. So, where to from here? So, I guess one of the main questions that I ask insurers is, are they going to look at group income protection? Because group income protection also loses money. So, will APRA look to to make adjustments there? Uh, I'm not aware of anything that they're specifically looking at, but I can say the super funds themselves, like, you know, your industry funds particularly, um, they've had significant adjustments to their income protection pricing over the last couple of years. So I think they've already been doing that on the tenders. They've been adjusting en masse the, the pricing as well as the terms and conditions on their covers. Yes, yeah, so the price, pricing is going up, mm-hmm. um, but I haven't seen too many um, replacement ratios coming down. No, I, I, haven't, seen no, any I haven't seen any changes to replacement ratios either. So, um, so that is interesting in and of itself, um, which is why I think, you know, insurers being able to offer closer to 70% is certainly a benefit because a lot of people, you know, the difference between that extra 5% is not so much to ask to people adjust to it for better policy. Um, but, you know, if you're talking about a 15% drop, you know, 75 plus super versus 60% and nothing else, ooh, that can be a bit of an adjustment. That's right, yeah. And I mean, the other the other changes like what's considered pre-disability income or retail has always been better and still is mm-hmm. better um, than, than super policies. Um, so, some of those other clauses that um, have the long-term claim sustainability mm-hmm. measures, they were already in that group exactly. space. But that replacement ratio, and again, coming back to your point, like dabbling in insurance, even if it's a new customer, if they've got group income protection, in my business, we, we question all the time, well, if there's no exclusions, should we still replace this if we're replacing it with a lower replacement ratio? Uh, maybe not. Maybe we just, you know, hold that two-year contract and then have a two-year wait on the on the retail policy. Um, and so, it is interesting where there is a discrepancy where that group based on that one aspect is 
better than the retail equivalent. Yeah, where it fits in. Yeah. And and thoughts on APRA looking at TPD, sustainability? Uh, I would actually be more concerned about them looking at trauma more than anything else. So trauma is that it's just like IP. It's everyone's been in this arms race to have the best definition. I can tell you a couple of uh, scenarios where with some insurers, their definitions are so generous, you can legitimately get a claim in an illegitimate way. <laughs> so, Help me understand okay, that. I, so, need to, okay. so, I need to learn more about what I can do okay, with my clients so then. If you, let's say... Um, one of the scenarios I was told by a BDM at an insurance company was that their heart attacker definition had become so um, so good that typically, you, you know, you've got signs, symptoms, you've got new waves, you've got troponin, which is the chemical. Um, effectively, you can replicate that. So if you went to and ran a marathon, you're going to have elevated levels of troponin. Um, and, you know, if you go to a hospital going, I've got chest pains, that's... That's, that's a heart attack claim. Um, that's yeah, right. all it takes to meet this stage. It's gone beyond what it actually needs to do. Um, now, that isn't the case with all insurers, but a couple of insurances, their definitions are so good. There's also another case, like 25% of the population has benign brain tumours, right? But they are never found because people don't routinely go get MRIs mm. without unless they've got a reason. But some of the trauma definitions are so contract that the simple um, discovery of that will lead to a partial trauma claim. Um, you know, it is the purpose of it so simply to give people money for something that's not causing them a problem? No, it's not. So yeah. um, th- it really comes down to how fit for, you know. Um, that's all right. And, you you've, you know, you've, you found a melanoma, um, got it cut out at the GP office, no issues whatsoever, mm-hmm. doesn't lead to anything and you get 25% trauma claim. Like, that's pretty good, um, and and that's why. But but trauma doesn't have a sustainability issue. I think it will um, over time eventually. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that that's my gut feel. I think, you know, trauma is a much newer product. It hasn't been around as long. You know, so it was what Dr. Marius Barnard invented it in like early nineteen nineties. So um, so it hasn't been around yeah. that long, and it has changed. I mean, uh, yeah. The the scenario with the marathon. Would I run a marathon for 275k <laughs> no. for my trauma? Probably not. <laughs> I'm not gaming that system. I hate just running, and I would probably throw yeah. out my lower back and have an eye claim on that. <laughs> I, I did a I did a 5k fun run yeah. once. The whole time I was like grumpy with Kate, my wife, saying, "This is not fun." I know. What, what are we doing here? I don't know why they call it a fun run. There is nothing fun about running that far. Yeah. So I mean, I am also a tight ass. So 275k, I probably would train for a marathon and do it um but i'd need it i need it signed off that i'm going to get paid a trauma claim before i do it um oh this has been really good um so i guess what are your learnings from this whole experience getting involved with you know policy getting involved with you know the task force what are some of like your key learnings about i guess how advisors can do better in the lead up to any regulatory changes um, Gosh, I, and also once they've been announced and, and these changes have done, what are some learnings that we I can just take say, you know, really make sure you just stay on top of the announcements. I mean, that's the key thing. You need to know what's expected, what's coming, so you can at least plan 
and adjust because, you know, pivoting on the spot can be pretty hard. So I would say make sure you're ready for these. Keep an eye out, ear to the floor. And obviously your associations, you know, media formats are all going to keep you up to date on these things. So just pay attention to it. Um, and if you're not sure, reach out to somebody who is, who can bring you up to speed. So I think that's pretty important. Um, so it really is at the moment a watch this space. Mm. And I mean, that's a great, great point. Overall, it's just to be connected with advisors who are smarter than you. Mm. Like, I mean, every advisor I know is smarter than me. So that's easy for me, but just get connected with people who know these things. Um, and so like, yeah, anytime there's, you know, investment discussions or, you know, you know, budget changes very rarely impacts insurance advisors, the, the budget. But it's like pick up the phone and say, hey, has there anything really impacted us? No, nah, all good. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, staying connected and, and staying involved and listening to amazing podcasts um, <laughs> is, is, uh, is a good one. Good tip. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I don't know if we did this last time. But I'm going to ask you two questions. What's one interesting hobby that you have? Oh, God. <laughs> I wouldn't say I have an interesting one, but I have an interesting pet at the moment and he's kind of an interesting hobby looking after him. Oh, your, your sons aren't pets. <laughs> I don't, that's not okay to call them pets. No, um, I have a bearded dragon. They're children. <laughs> a bearded dragon? Bearded dragon, yeah. What do you feed it? Do you have to feed it like crickets, uh, crickets and stuff? Crickets and mealworms and, you know, yeah. little bits of salad and whatnot and, um but, yeah, you have to be really careful because need, he needs time out of his enclosure. But, um, but of course, they have salmonella on their skin. So um, thanks to my son once putting, giving him a bath and letting him run all over the kitchen bench, we all had a bout of salmonella. Oh, yuck. <laughs> Lesson learned for everybody. But, um, but otherwise, it's, um, yeah, he's, he's a lot of fun. And they have, I wouldn't have any other reptile pet because, you know, bitter dragons have got more personality. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, yeah, give us an information about your experience with the task force as well as um, giving us an update on kind of what you see happening in the world. Wonderful. Thanks for having me on again. Awesome. Thanks, Catherine. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed this episode and you think someone else will get value out of it, I'd love it if you could forward it onto them. And as always, we can continue the conversation in the My Risk Advisor Facebook group. All you need to do, open up Facebook and search My Risk Advisor and I'll see you in there.